how did you get into probiotics research? Yeah. I use a technique called candle rimetry, which is really difficult to say. And it essentially means measuring heat. I think most people have probably done a version of country at school where you burn a peanut and work out how much uh, water rises in temperature. Yeah. And so we have these instruments and they measure heat. Uh, and the reason that I got into looking at bacteria in the first place is because bacteria are alive. And anything which is alive is producing uh, some heat. And so we can use the current to study bacteria. They're an almost perfect sample for, for the sorts of instruments that I was using. The reason we got into probiotics is because we teach pharmacy on, in our university, and we only have that one programme, pharmacy, as you teach as well. And one year I thought to myself, I know, I'm going to think um, about probiotics. And I'm going to think, what happens if, if one of these students, they go and become a pharmacist in their local pharmacy, what will happen if someone comes in and says, um, I'm thinking about buying a probiotic, which probiotic should I take? Today's episode is sponsored by Simprove. Simprove is a live and active bacteria liquid supplement designed to support your gut. Monday Science listeners can take advantage of a 15% discount on Simprove's 12-week program. Find out more at www.mondaysciencepodcast.com forward slash listen. Science. Science. Technology. Technology. Medicine. Medicine. Health. Health. These four things make the world go round. Without them, we couldn't exist. This is the Monday Science Podcast, a weekly show bringing you the latest research and news in science, technology, medicine, and health, answering your questions or finding experts in the field to answer them. Your host is a pharmacist, an award-winning scientist. She leads her own research group and is the founder of King's College London Fight the Fakes. A tad bit on the qualified side. Welcome to Monday Science. Here's your host, Dr. Bahija Raimi Abraham. When I knew of Professor Simon Gaysford, I knew of you for thermal analysis and actually thermal analysis and 3D printing. I didn't mm. know much about your work on probiotics. Mm. And it wasn't until I had an interest in oral mucosa, oral mucositis, mm. following on from ca cancer therapy and chemotherapy and looking at that. And when we had a conversation about what to do with that project, and then you mm. talked about probiotics, I was like, oh, I didn't know. Then I see that you published loads in this area. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I feel really bad. <laughs> I didn't know your work. Um, and also you've given several different talks, you've been featured on many different media outlets. So how did you get into probiotics research? Yeah. What would also be helpful is that journey from pivoting from what you are traditionally known for to probiotics. Yeah. And you know what academia can be like where you're pivoting into something. You're like, why are you there? We don't see what, yeah. <laughs> what is this? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know about academic bandwagons as well as I do, because that's, uh, that's the base of academia. Yes, it's a very good question. And the answer is, and I don't want to get too technical, because I know that people from lots of different backgrounds are going to listen to this. So I use a technique called candle rimetry, which is really difficult to say. And it essentially means measuring heat. I think most people have probably done a version of country at school where you burn a peanut and work out how much uh, water rises in temperature. Yeah. And so we have these instruments and they measure heat. Uh, and the reason that I got into looking at bacteria in the first place is because bacteria are alive. And anything which is alive is producing uh, some heat. Two of us at the moment, as we're speaking, are alive and we are producing heat. So uh, bacteria are no different. And so we can use the current to study bacteria. They're an almost perfect sample for, 
for the sorts of instruments that I was using. The reason we got into probiotics is because we teach pharmacy on our, in our university and we only have that one programme in pharmacy, as you teach as well. And so we get students that need projects every year. And so a lot of them. And so one year I thought to myself, I know I'm going to think um, about probiotics. I'm going to think what happens if, if one of these students, they go and become a pharmacist in their local pharmacy, what will happen if someone comes in and says, um, I'm thinking about buying a probiotic, which probiotic should I take? So I thought what I'll do is I'll get one of the students just to have a quick look-see at probiotics so that uh, she could come up with some guidelines to advise uh, consumers which sort of products they should invest or waste their money on, depending on how you look at um, probiotics. Yeah. So I sent her across uh, the road. We've got Boots and Holland and Barrett, uh, not to name across the road. And so she bought as many probiotic products as, um, as she could find. You'll be pleased to know that I reimbursed her, so she wasn't out of pocket, so that's fine. Uh, and we simply started testing them. I mean, we're just asking some questions about that a consumer might ask. So for instance, if the, if the packet says it contains a particular species, did it? That's a good question. If it says it contains a billion bacteria, did it? That, they were the sort of questions that we were asking. So she was just in the lab measuring how many bacteria were in the different products. And then we just started asking some other questions. How should a person swallow it? Should they swallow it with water? Should they just, if it's a liquid, should they drink it directly? And so we just set up a really simple test to, to measure an artificial stomach effectively is what we set up. And she was just testing to see whether the bacteria or not. So really she ended up producing a set of guidelines as to how you should choose a probiotic, which is essentially personal opinion and the probiotics manufacturers hate it. I think a liquid probiotic is better than a solid probiotic um, for reasons we can talk about later if you wish. And also I think it's better to take a product in the fasted state. So that means not directly after eating. <laughs> and if anyone's thinking to themselves, why? I love taking Yakult straight after eating. <laughs> it's my normal pudding. It's so strawberry. The answer is because when you eat something, your body starts producing acid to degrade the food that you've just eaten. And if you're following what I said earlier, most bacteria are not very tolerant to, to really strong acids and your stomach's producing hydrochloric acid, which is a very strong acid. So, so we normally say take a probiotic before eating because then your stomach hasn't produced a lot of hydrochloric acid. Very interesting. Um, the, it's, when you were saying that, I was like, oh yeah, I've been doing that right then. <laughs> but I think naturally, well, okay, for, on my end, I would think, well, it's better to take it without food anyway, so that they can allow themselves to, you know, get comfortable, be okay, meet their friends, <laughs> <laughs> meet them, their new friends, their new neighbors. Yeah. Hiya. Yeah. Um, but they're not many, I mean, okay, actually, when you were saying the liquid, there's the different yogurty type drinks, but most people, because they don't always taste great. So most people tend to have the capsules and... Yeah, that's true. I think there's two reasons why people do that, actually. So one is convenience. Yeah. Um, I think it's easier to store capsules. If you look at liquid products, if you go to your more high chain, high, your high end supermarket, the ones that rhyme with latros, for instance, <laughs> a lot of liquid products available now, but they're all in the fridge. And I, I think that if you're buying a probiotic and it's a liquid, it really should be in a fridge. If it's not in a fridge, you've got to ask some serious questions about what's going on there. And obviously, you know, that's difficult from a consumer's perspective. Even if you buy Yakult or Actimel, they're chilled, right? So, and you've got to keep them in the fridge. So you can't really walk around with them in your bag and just think, oh, I'll just pop a probiotic here. You've got to, you've got to keep it chilled. 
uh, whereas solids are much more convenient. And the other thing is that people take, people often take probiotics because of the health benefit. You know, maybe they've got some bloating or some other sort of gut condition. They want to try and, and improve that. They're looking for an, a medication or at least they're approaching probiotics as if they were medications. And most people, when they think about medications, are thinking tablets and capsules. And so, you know, visually, I think people think uh, tablet and capsule is better because it's, it's what we think medicines are. When, when people say to me, should I take a solid or a liquid? I always say, think about the Star Wars films, The Empire Strikes Back, if anyone remembers that, and Han Solo, because at one point in The Empire Strikes Back, he gets completely desiccated into a, into a storage facility and gets taken away, and he doesn't appear again until the next film. So that, that's how they managed to keep him uh, frozen. And, and effectively, they desiccated him, so they removed all of his water, uh, and so you'll turn into a powder. And that's essentially what um, bacteria have gone through when they're formulated in... Uh, tablets and bacterium should be full of water. It's effectively like a little balloon filled with water. And to make a tablet or capsule, you have to suck that water out. And it's a pretty big ask for a bacterium to, to survive that desiccation, to be swallowed, to sit in the stomach acid, to get all that water back in again, to recover, and then start to grow in your body. You know, it's just a big ask. Whereas if you take a liquid probiotic, the bacteria haven't been dried. They are the little water-filled balloons. They are in an environment that they're happy. All they've got to do is, is warm up as they hit your body because it's the first thing and then they're good to go. So I think liquids are better than solids for that reason. The way you've described it just then, I have a little bit of an emotional attachment now to the probiotics. I want them to do well. You know, and no, and it's like they I feel really bad. They're freeze dried or something, they're traumatized. But it's true when you put it that way, it's a, it's a little, you know, it's adds, tra <laughs> adds trauma to the back, the bacteria, but it, it does to some extent. Just for the listeners, why is it better for the if it was to be in liquid? Why is it better to be chilled? So, I think most people would, would understand that bacteria grow best at certain temperatures, and the sorts of bacteria we're talking about, the ones that like to colonize humans they grow best at 37 degrees because that's the temperature that the human body is at. So if you were to make a product, um, a yogurt, for instance, and you were to store it at 37 degrees and you were to drink that yogurt, it, one, it, I think it would be relatively unpalatable because most people associate yogurts and things like that as being cold anyway. But two, what would happen is the bacteria will just grow um, on storage because it's at the perfect temperature for them to grow. So really, you don't want to encourage bacteria. To, you want them to, to grow in you. You don't want them to have grown and then died in the product. So you chill them down and then they're in the sort of state of suspended. I just want to talk about the use of probiotics in other, well, in various different health conditions. We had at my old, well, my undergrad university, we had one of the lecturers there who unfortunately developed Parkinson's disease. Mm -hmm. I was on the train on my way down to London and he just happened to be on the train with his wife. And we were talking about Parkinson's and things that had been shown to have worked and he was talking about how at some point the treatment is not that it wasn't working but it wasn't working well just you know the mm. levodopa and all those things and then there was an academic in oh I think it was actually at King's well, I'm not trying to promote but there was an academic at a university in London anyway who was saying that when it comes to Parkinson's one of the main things to focus on is gut health and to look at, see, how do we get the gut health 
back to normal with the use of various different things, including probiotics, and then the patient's symptoms should improve. And that's actually what they'd been working. So I guess that's just one example, but there's lots of evidence of probiotic use in gastro-related conditions and other conditions. So yeah, just a general discussion, like what are your thoughts on it? And and is there a a need for more scientific evidence in this area? I think you raise a really important topic because the thing about gut health and the bacteria in your gut and what that means for different disease states is really starting to be understood now. And partly that's because scientists have only recently had the tools to be able to sequence the bacteria that are in your gut. It's surprising really, but maybe within the last 10 years, it's been possible to sequence the bacteria from a stool sample and say to someone, you have these bacteria. And 10 years ago, we couldn't do that. So what that means is there's been an explosion of understanding of what types of bacterial combinations are prevalent in people with certain disease things. We have been looking at some, so we also have been looking at Parkinson's disease. We have a paper coming out on that imminently, I think. Liver cirrhosis is another one. Ulcerative colitis, I think people might expect gut conditions to be associated with um, imbalances in gut flora. So there's a lot of evidence now that if you've got a particular condition, and you looked at the gut um, bacteria in those people, the balance of bacteria, the good bad balance, is different in those patient groups compared with a healthy subject. With Parkinson's in particular, anyone that knows someone that's got Parkinson's disease, they will probably be able to tell you that one of the earliest symptoms of Parkinson's disease is constipation. So it's usually the case that someone that's developing Parkinson's has had a almost lifelong issue with um, gut health. And so one of the things about Parkinson's, there's a theory that some of the uh, proteins that are involved in the the progression of Parkinson's disease, they are actually produced in the gut. And ordinarily your gut wall, so the cells surrounding your gut, they do a really good job of preventing things that you don't want getting into your bloodstream. Because most Parkinson's patients have had lifelong constipation, maybe not lifelong, but certainly 10, 20 chronic constipation. Think what that means. It means your gut is always full of fecal matter because you can't expel it. And that fecal matter is quite solid. It's putting a lot of pressure on the gut wall. And your gut wall is just cells touching each other. And if there's constant pressure underneath, the cells can come apart. When the cells come apart, things can pass between the cells, which the cells themselves are trying to keep out. It's a bit like having a wall around your house and taking some bricks out. All of a sudden, lots of mice can get in because there's a big hole. And so it's the same thing. And so some of these proteins, which are thought to start in the gut, can transfer into the bloodstream, and then they start circulating around the body and they can transfer to the brain. Yeah. And so we've been looking at that using probiotics to try and improve general gut health and constipation because if you can sort that out as soon as the material starts flowing through your gut the cells can come together again and the barrier can um, reform and so we've seen quite an improvement I think in Parkinson's patients by taking probiotics. We have a study about to come out where we show what happens to the gut the the gut flora when you give probiotics to Parkinson's patients and we're also involved in three clinical trials, one of which is at King, which are going to report later this year on the clinical studies of Parkinson's patients and probiotics. So I think that's kind of important.
when I started looking at probiotics, I went to UCLH, which is a partner hospital, and I talked to a consultant gastroenterologist. He's really good. His name is Anton Emmanuel. He's a tremendous, um, tremendous um, physician. And I asked him, you know, what sort of gut conditions are you using probiotics for to treat in your patients? And I thought he would say the sort of things you might expect, IBS, IBD, ulcerative colitis, you know, gut condition. And he said, no, no, I, I, I look at um, Alzheimer's and Parkinson's patients, maybe people with multiple sclerosis. And I'm thinking, huh? <laughs> You've just mentioned the whole series of conditions that involve the brain, but you're a gastroenterologist. And I just couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't marry those two together. But I understand now it's because poor gut wall integrity allows all sorts into the body and then, and then it can cause all these other conditions. Yeah. So I kind of take the view here that probiotics can help improve gut health. Improving gut health, it then improves other conditions because a lot of these conditions are being driven by things crossing your gut wall that you wouldn't ordinarily cross your gut wall. <laughs> it's just that your gut yeah, wall is in yeah. bad shape. Yeah. That's really interesting. And, and um, I guess it also requires those who are treating the patients to take a, but that's, you know, the whole multidisciplinary approach, those who are treating the patients to be involved in research and those kind of discussions so that they, because they also become the gatekeepers. And as much as we've talked about the blockages for getting thing on, things onto the market, but also the other blockage as well is being able to conduct clinical trials and being able to get that evidence. Because I, I guess, correct me if I'm wrong, but probiotics, probably in the UK falls under the food uh, supplement uh, oh. category. And yeah. so when it comes to quote unquote food supplement category, they can get onto the market, yes, but not going to be on a formulary for clinical use effectively. Uh, absolutely, <laughs> I cannot, cannot argue with you. And so you really are, if you have one of these gut conditions or um, neurological conditions and you, you end up talking to a consultant, you are utterly dependent on the willingness of that consultant to be open to new ideas and to try different things. You work in a university which has a tremendous hospital attached to it. And I personally work with a number of people at that hospital. Ingvar Bjarnson, for instance, um, is a real supporter of probiotics. And I also work at a university that has a tremendous hospital attached to it. And Anton is a really good supporter of probiotics. And, and people like that, they will use probiotics on their patients. They publish results. Ingvar has published a number of really good studies on probiotic use. And I think it really can make a difference. But it, requi it requires a, a clinician who's willing to, to push boundaries and think differently. Because as I said already, a clinician following pathway of care won't be able to use probiotics. And the other thing you touched on, which I think is very important, is that within the European Union, and I know, I know we're not in it anymore, but we're still kind of following their rules, they changed the rules in 2012, I think it was. So they said that a consumer reading the word probiotic, they associate that word probiotic with a health benefit. And so they changed the rules so that the European um, Food Safety Agency has to license the use of the word probiotic. So if you want to sell a product in Europe and you want to say probiotic, you have to go to EFSA and you have to say, here are my data to demonstrate a health benefit of using this probiotic. And since they established that rule, they have not, to my knowledge, approved a single health claim. <laughs> and so there's no, there was a one limit, there's one, there's one prescribable allowance in the UK for a probiotic against diverticular disease, I think, or pouchitis, might be pouchitis. 
But in the main, there's no prescribed conditions for probiotics. Yeah. So even if you went to your, your consultant and the consultant said, yeah, I think you should try a probiotic, that consultant still can't prescribe you the probiotic. You'd have to buy it. I remember during my pre-reg, there was, I don't remember why though, and I can't remember, it would have been the cardiovascular ward. I remember on the reading a drug chart and then they prescribed Actamil. Mm, and yeah. I can't but I can't remember for the life of me why but we just knew that I, I mean I obviously in the time I would have known obviously but just memory but yeah there was something around because it would have been either on a general ward or a cardio ward and there were for certain patients it was like a default who knows maybe it could have been one of the because this it was a, a hospital attached to my institute but yeah that they would prescribe Actimil. it'd be interesting to to know you know how they got away with that really actually yeah I, I'm aware of some hospitals routinely would would give Actimel as well, actually, uh, to patients on uh, wards with IBS and IBD. I think it was for over 65s, because I think it was something around Actimel was the only, there was a clinical trial done or something with Actimel many years ago, and that then was able to justify, because yeah. you have, as you said, like the pathway of care, and you have the sort of the mm -hmm. formulary, and then if you'd go off off formulary or off license or like, like it would be more off formulary if you can justify but it's very rare because that has to get approved mm -hmm. at trust level but yeah I, I, I can't remember why that is but I just remember that so I wanted to talk about your latest publication but it sounds as if there have been updates since <laughs> I'm so sorry <laughs> you talked about a four strain probiotic supplement influences yeah. gut microbiota composition and oh. gut wall function in patients with ulcerative colitis. Yeah. Yeah. So I actually would like to focus on a part of the study where you talked about evaluating the difference between wound area and wound mm. healing, because just going off the back of what we're talking about, like these other uses. Yeah. So perhaps mm. if you could just give an explanation of why wound area and wound healing is important in general, and then what you found with your, with your study as it relates to probiotic yeah. use in this area absolutely that is absolutely fine although i'm going to answer the question slightly in the other the other order it, we, what we did was a big study in three disease groups ulcerative colitis parkinson's disease and liver cirrhosis and we did the studies concurrently and then when i've written them up we have involved various clinical groups with each of those three the funny enough the liver group is actually at king's but the other the other two groups oh no the, the parkinson's guys at king's as well Everyone's a king's honor. Yeah, um, why? Maybe. And so it's, there's been a delay in publishing some of those. So the, the ulcerative colitis one is published. The Parkinson's one is literally about to be published, and the liver one should be published soon. And they all follow the same basic basic approach. And what we did was, it's very difficult to make these studies in real human beings, because it's difficult to make anatomical measurements in someone's colon. <laughs> one, it's rather invasive. <laughs> But two, we don't even have the tools anyway. <laughs> so, so we can't really stick probes up people's bottoms and say, that's fine, we're going to make these measurements. So we don't really have any choice but to do these measurements in a laboratory. And we try and get the measurements as close as possible to someone's colon, but they, they are a little bit different. So for listeners, that means it's called in vitro testing. So it, it doesn't mean in, in a human, it means in a, in a beaker.
This episode is sponsored by Simprove. Simprove is a live and active bacteria liquid supplement designed to support your gut. Simprove is founded on the belief that recovering and maintaining a healthy gut balance can help you live a fuller life. Monday Science listeners can take advantage of a 15% discount on Simprove's 12-week program using the code MONSCI15. Why 12 weeks? Because it takes 12 weeks for dietary changes to take effect. Also, the British Society of Gastroenterology guidelines recommend 12 weeks when trying bacteria-based supplements. Simproof comes in two very tasty flavours, mango and passion fruit, and an original flavour. This offer is available only to Monday Science listeners for new customers and one-time use. Find out more at www.mondaysciencepodcast.com forward slash listen. So we took stool samples from patients with these conditions. We mashed up the stool, we added some medium, and we we allow the bacteria to grow. And we end up with a beaker, which contains all of the bacteria that 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 patient would have had in their colon. Kind of gross, really. (laughs) Then what it means we can do is we can add some probiotic into that and we can see what effect the probiotic bacteria have on the bacteria that were natively there. That's essentially what that paper. And the way that the test works, we had a number of other tests that we could use as well. One was we take a, we take a model of the cells lying in the gut and we expose it to bacteria and we look to see what sort of compounds the cells release. So sometimes they release some chemicals that are a sign of inflammation. So lots of gut conditions are inflammatory conditions. And that really means that your body is releasing lots of molecules to say we've got a problem here. So we can measure that. And then the wound healing, we have some cells growing on a, on a plate and we literally scratch them to form a scratch so that they split, which is essentially the same having some sort of cut or ulcer or wound on your gut wall. And we simply see how long it takes the, the wound to heal. So the, the cells have to sort of come together and close the gap. Yeah. So that those tests involve three things. What happens to the bacteria in general? What happens to the signals of inflammation? And what happens to the rate of wound healing? Because I think you might imagine that something like ulcerative colitis, wound healing is really important because you've got open sores. You want them. Yeah, that's where the pain comes from, the open sores. And really, the, the outcome from that study was that if we added the probiotic bacteria to the mix, we saw an improvement in the balance of bacteria. So the bad bacteria went down and the good bacteria went up. We saw a reduction in inflammation. So the cells weren't producing as many uh, compounds saying, yikes, we've got a problem here. And we saw the rate at which the wound was closing. So wound area is really related to how, how the wound is closing. So we make a scratch using a camera. We take a photograph of that scratch. We look at the, how big the scratch is. And we just measure the area over a period of days because it's getting smaller as the wound heals. And we saw that if you have the probiotic, it makes the wound heal faster. Yeah. That's very, very interesting work. Just shows the potential diversity that probiotics have and diversity and application that probiotics have. I had a conversation with one of my colleagues, Professor Paul Long, a few weeks ago. I don't know. One of my former colleagues. Yes, of course, of course. Small world. Gosh, it's too much. (laughs) Um, But we were having a conversation about microbiome. Am I right that the human microbiome has been sequenced? Did I make that up? No, it has been sequenced. Okay, thank you. Did I make it up in my mind where I think about what's been sequenced? We had a really interesting conversation and and I I guess, and you've also touched on it as well, how the, uh, my, 
microorganisms and stuff that's living in me would be very different to yours. And he was, we were talking about this in the context of fertility and like fertility and balances and how if you have an imbalance in your microorganisms, that can also impact ability to conceive and, and things like that. And then we talked about regional differences and not, it was more cultural, like person specific. And I saw you have yet another paper inspiring <laughs> yet another paper November 2020 you've been very active the other one was September 2020 November is it one a month now Professor yeah. Gaysford <laughs> some of us are trying to get one in 2021 but anyway it's not about me right now so you have this really interesting paper study on the functional properties of potential indigenous probiotics isolated from human samples in West Africa I saw the study I think was conducted specifically in Ghana is that right yeah and you looked at isolates from human breast milk and feed samples. So do you mind just talking to us a little bit about that work and maybe some insight into these regional and I don't know, can we say ethical diff yeah. ethnicity differences? Yeah, ethnicity. Not ethical differences, yeah, ethnicity differences. Yeah, no, that, no, it's absolutely fine. So that work was done, I had a couple of students from Ghana who were both absolutely amazing and that work was done by one of those students who once she'd finished her PhD went back to Ghana to hold an academic post. Incidentally, this is nothing to do with back probiotics. She gave birth to three children while doing her PhD. <laughs> she was that good. Yeah, kind of scary. That is hey, impressive. The point here is, I think you're absolutely right, which is that as a newborn infant, it doesn't really matter who your parents were, where you were born, what their ethnicity were, because you're sterile. And so you don't contain any bacteria. And so, at the, at the moment of birth, everyone's the same. Therefore, your, your gut microbiome, by the time you're an adult, is hugely influenced by your environment, what you ingest, the sorts of foods that your parents give you, the sorts of things that you touch on a daily basis and stick your fingers in your mouth. All of those things are helping you to populate your gut. And I, I alluded to this already, but the difference between a natural birth and a cesarean birth in a natural birth, you're probably going to ingest into your mouth quite a lot of lactobacilli from the lining of the vagina. And if you have breast milk, you're also taking in lactobacillus infantum, I think it is. No, or bifidobacterium. I forget which one that is now. But the important point here is that you are starting to colonize your gut with the bacteria from your mother. So right from the get-go, your mother is having a huge influence in the sort of bacteria you're going to have in your gut. After that, you're then going to be influenced by diet. So for instance, someone being brought up on a daily dose of KFC or McDonald's is probably, probably not going to have a, a particularly healthy uh, gut flora. Whereas if you had lots of natural foods, maybe some fermented foods, if we go around the world, there's lots of cultures that have different types of fermented foods. So kefir from uh, Mongolia, for instance, and sauerkraut, Germany. Most cultures have preserved um, foods in some way and they're preserved through fermentation and so you're going to get different um, bacteria in that way and so I think even if you let's say you had a different cultural background we're all in the UK but people have different cultural backgrounds the foods that you're eating they're going to start populating your gut so two people can grow up in the UK but end up with completely different gut floras because the cultural differences and then you start going around the world to different countries of course cultural differences mean you're going to get different bacteria and so with that particular study, that's my student that went back to Ghana. And I thought that was a really clever idea. She 
she got lots of samples, 99 different bacteria, I think she isolated from, from patients in Ghana. And the idea was simply to say, well, hang on a minute, what sort of bacteria are prevalent? If you've grown up in Ghana and you've eaten Ghanaian food, what are the most prevalent types of bacteria that you can find? And I said already, a lot of the, a lot of the um, probiotics were isolated from feces. And so she did the same thing. She just took feces from people that have eaten Ghanaian food for their whole life to try and identify which types of bacteria are prevalent. And if you look at the list, you'll see, unsurprisingly, they're nearly all lactobacilli and bifidobacteria because they are the most common types of um, probiotic bacteria. And a lot of the ones that she identified, there's Voiteria, Acidophilus, things like that. They're the sort of things that we also, that we also would use in this country. And I suppose the, the one thing that's interesting is that you can take a bacterial uh, strain, you can sequence its um, DNA, and then you can pattern that. And so, for instance, Lactobacillus, and uh, there's one called Lactobacillus um, Voiteri GG, I think it is. That's patented. And it stops people being able to use it for commercial purposes. And I think what she was doing is she was trying to identify probiotic species that were prevalent in the Ghanaian population with a view to being able to supplement other Ghanaians with a naturally occurring um, species. And I think that was a really, really good study that she did, frankly. That's really interesting because, I mean, yeah. my random segue is when I had a personal trainer many years ago, Chloe Wiley, amazing. She's like a power lifter, UK power lifter. And I have no problem working out, but I do like my food in quite large quantities. So it is what it is. <laughs> and I was really struggling with diet. Yeah, I was just like, give me all the food. But I was really struggling with diet and in particular amounts, but just diet in, in general. And I remember she said that she subscribes to the philosophy of look at what your diet was when you were younger and basically just eat that food in healthier quantities and I mean it's a really weird time because as you were talking I was like oh okay that's interesting because she was like she has found that if she eats the food that she ate growing up in obviously the right amount of quantities and everything then it actually she feels better and it actually seems to be better for her and that's interesting because for myself I grew up with lots of fresh food and, and things like that and then also a mixture of Nigerian and Trinidadian food so I make sure that I try and mimic my mom's cooking and my grandmother's cooking in what I do and I found once I changed that that helped me so I don't know I mean it's a, my random segue I don't know if there is any influence in that but I definitely know my gut felt better yeah. and trying to keep that balance of what was I used to eating and how was it prepared when, like I said, when you're a baby, you don't have a lot of gut bacteria. You certainly don't have a lot of diversity in those bacteria. And as you grow up, your formative years, you are populating your gut with whatever is going in. And so that's really important. And, and this thing about living in a sterile environment and um, not allowing kids to touch anything dirty and there being increasing prevalence of asthma. Although I noticed there was a big UCL study that was published only the other day, <laughs> which said, a sterile home environment doesn't correlate with increasing asthma, but I don't know, I'm on the fence about that one. I think it's important. The other thing is that most people think your gut bacteria are transient. So that they're living in your colon, in your feces. And so every time you defecate, you're just getting rid of a load of bacteria and then they regrow. And that's not really true. The, the bacteria are really living on the lining of your gut. And they live in communities where they really tightly bind together. Lots of different bacteria, but they bind really tightly together. And those are called biofilms. 
most people have heard of biofilms from say a sewage pipe getting blocked or something or a catheter getting blocked but you've, you've also got bacteria living as biofilms in your gut and the reason they do that is because it's a protection against um, bad things so if all the bacteria come together and they form a shield and they excrete special um, proteins and mu uh, mucins they're called and they make a mucus sticky mucus layer it's really difficult to get rid of the bacteria so it's their way of protecting themselves so what that means is it's a bit like trying to turn a, a huge great container ship you need several miles to start turning direction it's the same with changing your gut flora now if you have you you've got your gut flora built up over 20 30 years eating a week of kfc isn't going to change your gut flora you you need years of consistently eating a different type of diet to start to affect this type of change but equally you can imagine that all of your bacteria are down there like hungry dogs wanting to be fed every day and if they're wanting i don't know what a particular nigerian specialty that your mum can make yeah. and you're not giving it to them <laughs> Eba negusi, that's my favorite for any well, nigerians yeah. out there yeah <laughs> they're going to start getting cross aren't they because they yeah. want that they want that and you're not giving it to them so so you're going to start to get maybe bloating or something like that because what you've done is you've eaten a sandwich from Marks and Sparks instead and that bread has just encouraged a different bacterial group to gorge themselves, produce lots of carbon dioxide and all of a sudden you can't stop farting because you've just eaten something completely different and you feel awful because you're it's just true. full of gas. And it's only when you return to the sort of food that your, your gut bacteria are used to, you yeah. suddenly feel better. So it makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah. If you want to affect a change, you've really got to change your diet over the course of years. I mean, I've got two follow-on questions. One, probably more of a statement, it's interesting for you to talk about biofilms in the way you were talking about it, because we hear such negative things about biofilms in the term, in the way of antimicrobial resistance. So it's quite, and we forget it's part of the natural process yeah. of bacteria coming yeah. together and then the second oh my gosh i lost my my train of thought biofilm the second actually there was another point i wanted to make around the probiotics once you sequence it and you can patent that surely that's unethical because it's yeah. a living thing right so how can you patent something that is i don't know what the legal basis for that is i think you might be right about patenting actual dna sequencing but i can tell you that if you go to one of the culture collections and you look on a particular species, GG is one, you will see that it says this is under patent and it cannot be used for commercial work. So they must be able to patent on the basis of something, whether it is um, some sort of unexpected effect when that um, bacterium is in the body, for instance. Yeah, but I think you might be right about that. There's an ethical issue there about whether it's possible to sequence a section of DNA. Biofilm is interesting because I, I think what people... Well, I say people forget, but they don't know. You can't forget something that you don't know. But the fact is that biofilms are what is coating your gut in your colon. So it's easy to think that when you eat something, the food that you eat is touching your the, the lining of your gut directly. But it's not. Your gut is lined with bacteria and then there's a mucus. And so really the way to think about that bacteria is they're a gateway between what you eat and what you feel. And you can imagine if you eat something and the bacteria aren't happy, <laughs> they, may, they might produce compounds that irritate your gut lining. So it's not the food that's irritating your gut lining, it's the bacteria that are irritating your gut lining. Just think of them as a sort of gatekeeper. And it's one of the reasons why it can be quite difficult to effect a change or improve some of these conditions, because you need to deal with the bacteria, but they're sort of buried deep in this biofilm. Yeah.
I remembered. So, oh, sorry, carry on. So imagine like a sewer that gets blocked with a biofilm or a catheter or something. It's difficult to get rid of. Yeah. If, you, if you're in hospital with a catheter and it gets blocked with a biofilm, it might be possible to flush it out or you have to right. change the biofilm. Uh, that actually brings me on to the, what I remembered and forgot now remembered. Colonic irrigation. What are your thoughts on that then? <laughs> Thanks. Well, you talked about me farting. <laughs> so I'm like, well, back to that then. Not for you personally, but <laughs> under the guise of... I've got some time to see. No, I haven't, any, I, I haven't got any personal experience, I suppose, is what I meant by that when I said I haven't tried it. I, I, can, I can certainly see a point in flushing toxins out of your colon. And I'm pretty certain that colonic irrigation would not remove the biofilm. It, it would remove fecal matter. I don't think it would remove the biofilm. I don't think it would be aggressive enough to remove the biofilm. And so I think in that way, it's probably, there's probably not a lot of harm in that. If you had the toxins in the stalls that would get rid of that, it probably would leave the biofilm okay, I suspect. So I can't, I don't think there's a negative. I mean, there are negatives to colonic irrigation, such as the risk of perforating your bowel and stuff like that, which is very bad. But um, now for a fecal transplant, there's loads of evidence of um, people fundamentally changing their disease states with um, fecal transplant. Even as things as, that seem to be as unrelated as autism, there's, there's evidence that children that are highly autistic can can change their behaviour with fecal transplants. It really is quite striking. So I think, and obviously in that instance, you've got to flush out, you've got to flush out the colon first as well. But I suspect that might also be done with antibiotics to really to really get rid of everything that's there. What can people do to improve their gut health? Well, my friend is a nutritionist. She's called Eve Kalinick. She's a tremendous nutritionist. She's just written a book about gut health and the autonomous nervous system and what you might eat <laughs> to, to improve that. So I would suggest maybe look at some of her work because she's uh, extremely good. But in the main, you want to be eating things that your bacteria are good with digesting. So things that contain insoluble, uh, insoluble, indigestible carbohydrates, for instance, the sorts of things that are not highly processed. If you eat a Mars bar and it contains lots of highly processed ingredients, your body can absorb them almost instantly. And none, none of that gets to your colon. If you eat something like a bowl of all bread, <laughs> you, can, you can absorb almost nothing out of that. <laughs> And it all gets down to your colon, and then, and then your bacteria can get to work. <laughs> so it's really important to eat vegetables, foods that contain difficult to digest stuff, and um, fibre, because fibre provides a framework for your faeces to be built around, and it helps motility through your gut. So really eat things, healthy things to encourage your gut bacteria to grow. Thank you very much. Now, before um, I ask you uh, about your concluding comments, we can't end our discussion without talking about your YouTube channel. Oh yeah, YouTube channel, yeah. Yeah, so, tell us about your YouTube channel and how that came about. YouTube channel is called, thank you for that, by the way, Dee. The, the YouTube channel is called Pharma Drama because I like to make a drama out of pharma. <laughs> That's a great tagline. So on that channel, I am going to be talking about various issues to do with the pharmaceutical industry and healthcare. So each week I'm going to put up just short nuggets. I'm going to call them science nuggets, which I've abbreviated to snugs. So I'm going to have some snugs every week where we talk about some basic science. So if people aren't sure, what's a tablet? What's a capsule? What is a probiotic? 
Uh, that's the sort of thing we're going to talk about. I'm going to start to put up some um, some snugs, so people can come and have a snuggle. And then oh, that's so nice. Well, I, I want to say that I think pharma drama is great. I really would like to collaborate somehow. I think it's amazing that you started this because for me, I've always appreciated like and liked your delivery style, your presentation style. You can, I don't know, you have an ability to, let's say, digest, seen as the theme, the gut and all the things you've said is the theme for today. So you're able to get the information, digest it into a more palatable form, and it makes it so interesting and easy to understand and also entertaining. And I'm really glad that hopefully the world as it were the youtube platform everybody else gets to see that and how amazing you are at science and everything so i'm very excited pharma drama and snuggles here we come <laughs> thank you for those kind words and while we're on this subject of uh, you know being nice to each other i've got to say that of all the students i've ever seen you're the best presenter so if you want to work with me on pharma drama that's totally fine a uh, natural public speaker so that would be good Thank you so much. Look at us giving us giving each other compliments <laughs> yes. in a recorded platform that everyone else is going to hear because I'm going to keep this in. <laughs> See, the two of us together could be more powerful than either one of them. Hundred percent. Oh gosh, that could be your concluding comment. No, I'm joking. No, no, no. Let me not put words into your mouth. Okay. So, last but not least, with everything that you've spoken about today, what would you want our listeners to walk away with? What are, the, are your concluding or key take-home messages? I suppose the key one is for me, probiotics are often viewed in the pharmacy world up there with homeopathic remedies. That is that there's a lot of um, pseudoscience going on and you either believe in it or not, but there's not really a lot of underpinning science. And so I really do feel that probiotics are a good idea. If someone is thinking to themselves, well, I do feel like I've got a bit of an upset stomach or my tummy does feel a bit bloated, try a probiotic. You, you, you literally have nothing to lose. You, you might have money if you've got money <laughs> otherwise it's, it's not super expensive just go to the supermarket and have a look and just try one and see and if you feel better that's great a lot of people say to me well i've tried probiotics and i don't feel any different then i say either try a different range of probiotics and see if one of them makes you feel different and then we talked about that already and even if you don't feel any different that may well be because you don't really have a degree of imbalance in the first place. No, not everyone is bloated. And some people, they don't think that they're bloated, but they are, but they're used to it because they're bloated all the time. So it becomes normal for you. And so even if you take a probiotic and you, and you don't feel any different, the science suggests that there's a lot going on in your gut, which you can't feel, but it's generally doing you some good. So I would say take home message, try a probiotic, liquid probiotic if you can, uh, and just see if you feel different. You've been listening to the Monday Science Podcast, a weekly show bringing you the latest research and news in science, technology, medicine, and health. We hope you've gotten some useful and thought-provoking info from the show, and we hope you had fun along the way. We know we did. We'll be back soon. But in the meantime, hook up with us on our website at www.mondaysciencepodcast.com. Shoot us an email at info at mondaysciencepodcast.com. Find us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube at Monday Science. And access episode summaries at mondayscience.medium.com. See you next week on the Monday Science Podcast.